Welcome to the Your Story is Our Story podcast, brought to you by the new 3Rs.org, which is dedicated to telling the social justice stories of yesterday and today. My name is Neil Foote, host of this podcast, where we will have honest, heartfelt, and heart-wrenching conversations about race and culture in our communities. This podcast is our way of helping you join us in our mission. The new three R's educates and empowers through the art of social justice storytelling, building relationships and fostering a sense of responsibility. We are creating a more civic and compassionate society, one child at a time. In today's episode of Your Story is Our Story podcast, we bring you part two of our intergenerational conversations between Lola West, who is founding partner of West Fuller Advisors that provides strategic insight and investment advice to nationally recognized organizations and high net worth and exclusive clientele in the United States and abroad. She's joined by the students Jaden and Nisa, who are two wonderfully brilliant and inspiring young women. During today's conversation, we learn more about Lola's fascinating journey, including the likes of the late South African President Nelson Mandela, Jesse Norman, Maya Angelou, Elton John, Toni Morrison, Whoopi Goldberg, August Wilson, and Camille Crosby. We'll wrap this episode up with our very own Danny Gore, who will offer this week's Black History class. Lola, we're flipping the table in today's conversation and would love for you to share your story. I was wondering if you can share with the young ladies a little bit about your, your journey through your career and how you've, you've, you've brought yourself to this point now. Well, thank you, Neil. And I, again, I, I just wanna acknowledge and thank Jaden. What you all have had to go through is just something kids shouldn't have to go through. It's, it's really not good. Um, so let me tell you some of the things. Um, and un unfortunately, in, in one, one story, and you know, I toyed with whether or not to share this or not share this, but the, the issue is there are some black people who don't understand that they're black or they feel that um, they can't defend what blacks have done, okay? Because they really think that white folks are right. So I had that experience working as a Head Start director where, you know, I had a black woman tell me that when I, when I had one of the teachers teaching about Malcolm X and Martin Luther King, her comment was she didn't want them to learn about Malcolm because he was nothing but an international rapist. Now, where did she get that? Okay. She lived up in Harlem. Malcolm was always up in Harlem. He was not. But there are certain Black people who just think white folks are right. So I had that job as a Head Start director for 11 months and I quit because I don't think that one has to endure a position where it affects your health. And I was not interested in working for an organization 
foundation. So I've had five careers. That was the second one. The first one was I owned an antique store. People didn't want to pay for the work that I'd done on stripping furniture. So when I put a price tag of $250 on a table that I had stripped, a woman said, well, I'll give you 50. So I told her she didn't have to buy it. And that's when I realized that maybe I couldn't own a store because that's not what you say to the clients. But next, so then the third career after Head Start, I was a health administrator for a nonprofit organization. I was there for 11 years. I got a promotion every other year until the year that they decided to promote a white woman over me that I had trained and I quit. But you see, I prepare for things. I knew when I started there by a year into it that the institution was extraordinarily racist. And by the eighth year, I started planning to leave because I knew that it wasn't going to work out well. So I did some smart things. I banked all of my sick leave because they paid for six leave at departure, which was interesting because if you didn't use your vacation, you'd lose the vacation. So I banked all my sick time, used my vacation time, had some left. And when they came in and told me that they were going to promote someone that I had trained, I quit. But I was prepared to quit because I'd sucked time and money away, okay? After that, I decided that I'd read a book to figure out what I wanted to do that I knew I wanted to do. And the way in which I found out that I knew I wanted to do it was I read a book called What Color Is Your Parachute by Robert Bowles. And that book allows you to explore things and you do some studies and then they tell you at the end of it what you really like doing. So when I got through doing them, what I found out was that I liked raising money and planning parties. Because I'd done that all my life. I raised money in the church and I did everybody's birthday party and they were all good. Okay, so I knew I could do that. So fortunately I did it, I did it very well. I did an event for Jesse Norman, they won an Emmy for it. I developed Nelson Mandela's strategic fundraising plan when he ran for president and he sent me a personal letter. At the end of that period where I had my own company and I had done things that really made me happy the one thing I saw, and this is something because you all are both brilliant, you keep this in mind. I was raising funds, but I was raising funds from corporations in America to support the largest black nonprofit. So that would be United Negro College, NAACP, National Urban League, Studio Museum in Harlem. I did their events. I did the fundraising for them. What I found in 1996 was that with the advent, with the event of computers 
taking over everything. It was just the beginning. One of the things that companies did was if you had a Time Warner, I could go to Time Warner and because of the num number of companies that they own, I could get five tables for one event. Corporations got real smart. They decided to put all of their discretionary money and funds that you could get a table from now on is go to the foundation, which meant no longer five tables, only one table. So I knew that fundraising was just going to get harder and harder and I didn't want to do it. So I dissolved the corporation. I took three years off to figure out what I wanted to do next. In talking to a friend, I said, girl, you know, I got to get those 40 quarters in for social security because your social security is based on your last quarters of employment. So since I hadn't worked for anyone in 12 years, I was like, I need to go work. So I said, but I don't know what I want to do. And my friend said to me, why don't you just do what you love doing? And I said, what's that? She said, what are you doing with me right now? I said, going over your portfolio because you don't know what to buy. I had spent three years playing in the stock market. So when she said that, I was like, oh, wow. So I called a friend of mine who was head of the Maryland Foundation. And I said, do you think I'd make a good financial advisor? She said, sure. Got me an interview. I was at Merrill 10 years and I left in 2009 when I found that their integrity wasn't the level of my integrity. So I quit and I started my own company. So there are a lot of messages in what I've said to you and both of you will do more than I do. Because part of it is I didn't go through or have some of the things that you're experiencing right now. And no one talked about race back then either. So the one thing I would say is good for you that you are. Get more black students in school to speak about it because the silence is what kills us. And we have to stop it because kids don't know to say something. Well, Nisa, they have to be like you. They have to say something. Jaden, they have to be like you. You have to say something or what? Nothing happens. Now it's absolutely wonderful uh, to hear your your, your story, uh, Lola, because I mean, what what it tells all of us, right, is that uh, uh, the, the, there's no straight line in life as much as people want to tell us, right? <laughs> people always want to say, "Oh, just choose your career path, and it's all going to fall in place." Uh, for some of us, that does, but I think for many of us, it's finding those things that that we can become passionate about, um, uh, and and finding how you can do things really well, whatever it is you do. Yes, advertising campaign waged in America was the advertising campaign that black folks were no good, not worthy, half a person, two thirds of a person, and what don't know how to do nothing. So for a lot of black people, when they get money, they go right to white people and give it to them. Okay, that's changing now. But how I to address the answer that you're looking for about what have I done to support black people in this is 
from the very first day I started <clears throat> as a financial advisor, I started doing financial literacy. There are, there are two, two things that I did. One is we would go into high schools and junior high schools, and we would teach kids about budgeting, finance, just anything, because most Black kids in public high schools don't get much of an education. So extracurricular activity makes a difference. So we would go in, my partner and I, and we would do things like help kids with understanding the definition of simple financial things. Because what most people want to do is they want to assert that kids are stupid and they don't know. So what they'll do is they'll ask a kid, what is diversification? What kid knows what diversification is? But if you say to a kid, I, I sat in a room, I had kids from, they were white, black, brown. So I knew what I was looking at. Every single one of them had a grandparent that wasn't born in this country, okay? So when I asked them that, I said, so that's diversification. You're not the same. You're all, and you have diverse groups of people from all over the world. So then we just got into a conversation about diversification. And you know what the kid said to me? Okay, got that, next, okay? So then I talked about, you know, they, they said, well, what, what's this whole thing about stocks, bonds, and, and all of that? I said, easy. I said, if you're in an elevator, and the cable pops, what happens? The elevator drops. But if you're in an elevator and the elevator has three cables and one pops, what happens? The other two cables, hold it up. There you go. That's asset allocation because you have to have a portfolio that has stocks in it, bonds in it, cash in it. Those are the three parts of an asset allocation. So then we go into the definition of what's a stock, what's a bond, what, what do you do with cash? So, I mean, by the time, and then after all of that, I talked to them about budget. Nobody had mentioned what's a budget. I said, a budget is how much money you have, how much money you spend. If one is bigger than the other and it's you have the money, that's great. But if you're spending money and you don't have it, that's a problem. And that's called debt and you don't want to get in it, okay? So it's, it's really simple, but if kids don't know, because nowadays kids don't go into a bank, kids think money comes out of an ATM machine, okay? Money does not come out of an ATM machine. That's just a convenience. So part of it is teaching people, teaching kids, what's money, what can it do for you? If you have a budget, why is it that you can't take the food money and go buy sneakers? Okay. So it's just, it's stuff we have to learn. And we, as Black people and people of color, we never learn this conversation at a dinner table. Most of us didn't have a dinner table. Okay.
Yeah, um, I completely agree with you. Um, money, I was lucky enough where my parents made it a priority for us to learn about, you know, money and how to save money. And um, my dad has already gotten us, you know, involved with stocks and things like that. Um, and Nisa and I even did like a financial course together a couple years back. Um, but I wanted to go back to where you were talking about how, you know, if you don't talk about racism in schools and just in life, then nothing gets done. And I think that's an issue, especially in New York, um, because New York has some of the most segregated schools in the entire country. And, yeah. and I literally did not know that until like last year, I thought that just because we were in New York, and it's supposed to be this like, super liberal state, and you know, everyone gets along so well that you know, it wasn't really an issue here. And so I think so many other people also have that same mindset. And so race doesn't get talked about that much. And when it does, it's in the context of, you know, southern states that are known to be racist and segregated and things like that. So I just wanted to ask you how you think we as New Yorkers should handle that and what we can do to kind of raise awareness and make it known to people, especially white people, that racism is still an issue and that just because you live in New York, it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. Now, Jaden, you know, sometimes I can just be not nice as in nasty with folks. But I will say this to you. New York has this whole thing about their liberal liberal. You and Nisa get yourself the state map of New York that shows all the EDs and the ADs. It will show 95% of New York is what? Republican. Trump won Suffolk and Nassau County. Yep. The only reason why New York is liberal is because people of color live here. Those people say, I almost cussed to call them something, but then people up there in Albany? No. So the issue, you have to bring it up. It's not like it doesn't exist. People get a no move and some of them will bump you. And when they bump, I bump them right back because I'm not here for it. I don't have to move to let you pass. And there are people in New York who think that. Now your mother may not agree with my telling you that. So you check with her about how you do it because I don't want them to come after me, but I'm older. I just, I don't, I don't take anything. And thanks for that question. Because you, you have to address racism and most people don't want to. That's why nobody has to deal with it, okay? Because they just like, oh, you know, no, it's something and we're tired of it. Because for me to sit here at my age and see kids going through the same thing I went through at their age 50 years later, is just too much. Fantastic, great questions. It's wonderful questions, yeah. I, I want to kind I of shift. Oh, you have you a question? Yeah, Nisa, did you have another? Oh yeah, just a quick question, but I think this is going to go into a lot of conversation. Uh, um, just like with talking about the, I guess the ignorance towards racism and especially in New York, it's, you know, 
you can walk by a person and they will be like racist and they, you know, it's very, it's very close to you, but you don't really think about it because you think of, oh, like New York's very liberal and these different kind of uh, notions um, of like ignoring um, racism when it's right in front of your face, um, especially with the storming of the Capitol. I just wanted to know your opinions on that because I know a lot of people have been looking at it as a very in a very neutral situation or haven't really been thinking about it as like oh it's haven't really polarized the situation when it's a very polarized situation there's no debate about it um I just want to know your opinions on that it's difficult it's it's just difficult so I'll share personal stuff with you People that we interact with on a daily basis can sometimes be racist and not even know it. And they're liberal because they just can ask you dumb ass questions. This is a 65 year old woman who asked a black woman, had she said, oh, I read something that's so wonderful. You should read it. I said, what is that? She says the letter from jail that Martin Luther King wrote. I had to crack around at her and say, you think I haven't read that letter? But there it is. And she's not trying to be a racist. The level of the fact that black history is not taught indigenous people's history is not taught is because they can't tell the story of what these white people did when they came here. And it's the same thing they did at the state capitol because for them, they have to have somebody that they can step on because they're soulless people. Yes, uh, I mean, I, I think that that's just just absolutely powerful, which is kind of funny that you, you mentioned King's uh, Birmingham letter. I mean, the the book I always bring out uh, around this time of the year is, is, you know, we look at King's celebration and, and, and kick off the year is, is, you know, where where we go from here. And, and I'm always just fascinating as I'll just randomly open up that book uh, to a, a section. Um, yeah, and and I'm I'm just uh, amazed that the language. Yeah, we're not there. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we are not there, and and that the the language, other than using the term Negro, um, still kind of echoes so much of the themes that we've addressed here uh, in so many different ways. Senior presenting today's Black History class. Dr. George Carruthers, born in 1939, 
was an aeronautical engineer who built camera systems for NASA, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration. Carruthers is responsible for developing the far ultraviolet camera spectrograph for the 1972 Apollo 16 mission, which was used to build the first and only moon observatory. In 1970, using a sounding rocket, Carruthers made the first detection of molecular hydrogen in space. He also developed a rocket instrument that obtained an ultraviolet image of Halley's Comet with different far UV wavelength sensitivities used on the STS-39 space shuttle mission in 1991. I'm Danny Gore Sr. and this is your Black History Class. Thank you, Danny. Don't forget to tune in to part three about conversation with Lola, Jaden, and Nisa.